All right, there we go. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Team here, and this is BXJS Weekly, episode 122, bringing you all the best JavaScript news of in the podcast form. Right, uh, we surprisingly have quite a lot of stuff to talk about today, so let's get started without further intros. As usual, the first section of the week is getting started, and we got a whole five articles here today. That's been uh, quite a while since we had any content, really. So uh, let's get cracking. The first article of the week is the double bang operator and a misunderstanding of how JavaScript handles through C and false C values. This is a pretty good and very extensive write-up on the well double bang operator and true C and false C values in JavaScript. So if you are still confused about those, if you are just getting started with JavaScript and wanted to learn more, then absolutely go through this article and uh, check out what the author says. A lot of that stuff is pretty handy and probably will clear up some things that you might not know about this. Uh, then again, in some cases, um, I could say that this is slightly outdated because now that we have the Nullish Coalescing Operator, it is a lot nicer to use than the OR Operator because it handles the well some of the cases that are described here essentially but nonetheless it's still a really good article next article we got here is image classifier in the browser so this is a tutorial that guides you through um well very straightforward way really to build your own custom image classifier right in a browser without doing anything else uh, it's basically just shows you how to train your um mobile nets uh, and you know using the existing Kaggle data set and then export a model and then use that model in the browser by simply loading that with a tensorflow.js really straightforward tutorial but a very nice starting point if you were interested in doing something like this so do check it out if that sounds interesting okay next article we got here is introduction introduction no that's not a word introduction to Hegel. so we talked about Hegel. um a few weeks ago, I don't remember when exactly, but uh, Hegel is this new static type checker that is aims to be a better TypeScript essentially, and you know, kind of better TypeScript and Flow, I guess. So both of those. And this article walks you through what Hegel is, how does it compare to TypeScript, what kind of things does it aims to fix, how it aims to be better than TypeScript, and then also shows you how do you use it in uh, development as well as setting it up for production with Babel. So if you are interested in static type checking and were curious about the Hegel, absolutely check this article out. It's actually pretty damn good. Uh, hey, Brian, welcome to the stream. All right. Next article we got here is creating a multiplayer drawing game with Phaser and MongoDB. This is a pretty nice tutorial from uh, Mongo guys that shows you how to build your own multiplayer, well, game-y thingy. Like, I, I wouldn't call it a game because there's no really, like, game mechanics, but it does use Phaser for drawing and, you know, using it as a canvas thing. And then it uses the backend with a Mongo that basically stores and shares whatever the other people draw across everyone who is connected to the current canvas which is, you know, a nice way of uh, showing the very basics, I guess, of synchronizing data across clients. Uh, not super complex, but a pretty good starting point. So if you're curious about, you know, how do you get start with the phaser and multiplayer functionalities, then do check this out. It is a pretty good one. Uh, in this case, they use the um, hosted version of MongoDB, uh, which you know, can quite easily be replaced with your own server and custom version of Mongo running locally, which uh, again, you know, 
that's that's completely up to you. But uh, there you go. It's a pretty good article nonetheless. Okay, and the last article we got in a getting started section is creating tiny desktop apps with Tauri and Vue.js. So this is a tutorial for Tauri, which is a tool I have not heard uh, before. And uh, it looks pretty interesting, actually. So it's like, um, it seems to be sort of the electron alternative, I guess, right? So and allows you to build a desktop apps that are aim to be smaller um, than what you get from Electron, basically, including the RAM usage and file size and everything else. And uh, this is essentially a tutorial on how to use that. I probably should have included the Tauri into the um, libs and demos section, but you know, whatever. So if you are building desktop apps with JavaScript and you were you wanted to do something that is smaller and faster and essentially Rust based, then do check this one out. It's a really good tutorial and a very interesting tool itself. So again, you know, the tower itself is still in alpha. So make sure to keep that in mind when you are actually shipping anything and make sure to test extensively um, to, well, basically have everything you want, right? And uh, yeah, nonetheless, it looks very interesting. So uh, uh, I'm kind of curious to see how the whole area of desktop environment or rather how would you put it desktop development environments for javascript will evolve over time right because there's been like there's been a bunch of tries to make a faster smaller better versions of uh, electron using deno for example and the native web use the microsoft is also working on giving us the web view based on chromium which would mean that effectively if we have something like node or deno we could build desktop apps very easily right by just starting that web view but uh, yeah, it's it's quite interesting. So if that sounds cool, do check it out. Okay, now we're coming to the articles and news section. We got six articles here today. Some of them are pretty damn cool. Starting with dynamic type validation in TypeScript. So this one talks about, um, as the title says, dynamic type validation using TypeScript. Now, if you didn't know, TypeScript doesn't actually do any dynamic type validation, right? So whenever you use TypeScript, you will get your type validation on build time. But during the runtime, nothing will be validated. So if you still need to do some type checking or, you know, shape checking, whatever, you would have to do it manually, we would have to do it yourself. And this article talks about actually using TypeScript to compile those models to generate them, I guess, uh, automatically from TypeScript and use with the dynamic type checking tools to achieve that during the runtime, which is, um, again, some, I, I haven't even thought that, you know, this is actually a problem with TypeScript because I haven't been using TypeScript obviously that much, but um, obviously that's the thing. And yes, there are plenty of tools that allow you to actually generate the models for dynamically validated types from TypeScript uh, type definitions, interfaces, and so on and so forth, which uh, is actually quite straightforward. So do check this out if you are into the dynamic TypeScript, uh, sorry, dynamic type validation, and you are using TypeScript, this might be quite helpful. All right, next article we've got here is adding prefers contrast to Firefox. A really cool write-up that explains uh, what prefer contrast is and what did it actually took to add this seemingly simple feature to Firefox to be supported in there, which is, you know, as a, I'm, I'm, I have a bad eyesight, like, right, but not terribly bad. So like glasses usually do it for me, but I, it's, it just looks like, you know, a very simple feature, right? But when you look at what it takes to add something like this to the browser, it's just mind blowing. 
So if you're interested in accessibility and if you're curious about what does it take to add a, as I said, you know, seemingly simple feature to the browser, do check it out. It's absolutely mind blowing how much effort that is. But it's really cool that they did that. And uh, it's really awesome right up to see all the nitty gritty of the development of stuff like this. All right. Continuing, we got type safe JavaScript with JS doc, a different look at the uh, type safety in JavaScript and uh, code completion in JavaScript, I guess as well. Um, so this is basically talks about using JS doc annotations in VS Studio, uh, sorry, Visual Studio Code, right, to get uh, type safety and to get better development experience. Um, just as that says, essentially, JS doc, modern JS doc provides you with, well, just about everything you might want to have for annotating your code with types and setting up the type validation using TypeScript. Again, you will not be able to do that without TypeScript. But TypeScript does a surprisingly awesome job of understanding the JS doc type annotation within your JavaScript and type checking it when you just ask it to do so, basically. The article goes in depth on how exactly do you use um, JSDoc to annotate things? How do you define complex types? How do you define uh, properties, methods, functions, um, generics, whatever you can imagine, everything is covered here basically. Um, if you are interested in development experience, a comparison between JSDoc and TypeScript, I did a video on Wednesday. So you can just go ahead and look at the uh, channel and find it there basically. Uh, what I found is essentially there is not that much difference between uh, JS doc and uh, TypeScript in terms of development experience. Again, considering you are powered by TypeScript that actually does all that reasoning. So it's, it works equally well for JS doc and for TypeScript type annotations, at least in the basic cases that we were able to cover within like a two hour live stream. But yeah, it's an interesting area. And um, if you are you know, writing uh, JavaScript for quite some time, if you have a huge JavaScript code base, and you don't think it's viable migrating it to TypeScript, do check this out, maybe this is exactly what you were lacking. All right, next thing we got here is dates and times in JavaScript. So this is, um, this is sort of a request for feedback from uh, TC39 folks uh, for the temporal proposal. I think I covered it at some point, uh, quite some time ago, actually, so it's been moved to uh, quite a few stages now. But this is a proposal for better handling of dates, times, and well, general temporal data type, right? And uh, they now have the polyfill here that you can try out. And they also have a survey that is pretty damn extensive uh, in terms of, you know, the openness of questions and stuff like this. So if you are working a lot with dates, please, please, please have a look at that. Have check out the polyfill and complete the survey. It won't take you too long. But if you are working with dates a lot, I think your feedback will be invaluable to those guys. Unfortunately, I'm not in that area. So in my cases, dates are usually relatively straightforward. And all I do is just part them and uh, print them for user, which is, you know, just like one function. So I don't think my feedback is that good here. But if you are working with dates, again, do check this out, do give them feedback. It's absolutely crucial for the uh, improvement of the API. So there we go. Hey, T time, welcome to the stream. Right, uh, continuing, we got a case study moving a 3JS based WebXR app off the main thread. So this is a really cool um, deep dive, I guess, into the WebXR app that uh, is ran on the Oculus Quest, which is a standalone VR device. That is absolutely awesome, but you know, it's not exactly a powerful device. So essentially, it's a, it, it has the hardware of a mobile phone, right? 
Uh, well, maybe a bit more powerful than your typical mobile phone, but still, it's not that powerful. And the uh, case here is that you have this web app that you can render in VR that produces the tons of balls, right? And they just jump around. And um, as soon as you increase the number of balls to a specific amount, like 2000 here, it basically starts preventing the fra uh, quest from shipping frames in time, which leads to this kind of uh, black effect where it just basically doesn't render enough frames for you, which when you are in VR, that is jarring as hell. Like you do not want that to be uh, happening. And then the author here talks about what you can actually do to improve the timing of the frames and to make that faster so that you actually hit that 72 Hertz and 11.1 millisecond per frame so that it feels smooth, right? Um, by, well, there's a bunch of techniques actually used here. So the starting with adding a worker that would actually do the um, logic calculation for you, like physics and everything. And then uh, using, I believe there was another technique that was used, um, which is the, yes, instance rendering is what it's called. Uh, apparently this is like a WebGL thing that is typically used in rendering, which is improves the performance quite a lot. I'm not an expert in all of this, but it still was super fascinating to read about that and, and have, uh, you know, seeing the results. I sort of want to see the, um, want to try to build something like this in future because I personally love Oculus Quest as a device. It's a really cool um, thingy. But uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Really cool write-up, really great explanations of how that works. And also I understand almost nothing here, so... <laughs> But if you are working with WebXR, you wanted to work with WebXR or 3D, 3JS and 3D graphics in general, do check it out. It's a really, really good article. All right. Last thing we got here is Next.js, server-side rendering versus static generation. A really cool write-up from the Versal team on the difference and um, advantages and disadvantages, I guess, of server-side rendering and static generation within Next.js. So the article basically takes the very straightforward e-commerce Next.js app, the example that they have there, and walks you through the each page and explains what technique should you be using for that and why, which I think is really awesome actually. So I don't, I don't think I've seen that many tutorials that basically just take some sort of an app and then walk you through it and explain step by step why this approach is used here and why should you be using this approach and not the other one, right? Uh, like in my head, I think I already figured that out more or less, uh, but this article does an amazing job of explaining that and uh, showing you when to use which feature within Next.js, uh, as well as also like touching on other things like, you know, writing data and uh, benefits of the static rendering and so on and so forth. So if you are just getting started with Next.js or maybe you still haven't figured out when to use, you know, server-side rendering, when to use statically generated pages, do check it out. Again, most of those advices actually apply to other frameworks as well that support both uh, server-side rendering and static generation. Although admittedly, there's not that many of them, but still it's a really, really good article. So do give it a read. All right, that is it for articles in use. Now we're coming to the tips, tricks and bit-sized awesomeness. We got two things here. So the first one is the announcement from the Microsoft Edge team. They are rolling out the first look of the storage access API in Canary and Dev channels. So if you are interested in um, getting the storage access from your browser, which um, in my opinion, sounds really exciting. So like 
a few more features like this and we might not need Electron at all. We might be able to just go, you know, roll along with progressive web apps essentially, which personally I really like. Like I really like the idea of the web browser replacing most of my apps, if not all of them, right? Uh, and yeah, so this is essentially uh, still only in Dev and Canary. It is sandboxed access. It is only accessible via user interactions. There's a lot of precautions here because obviously you don't want every web page accessing your hard drive, which would be uh, quite disastrous. But it seems like a pretty solidly designed API. And uh, now we can try it out in the uh, Edge Devon Canary. It is behind the flag, so make sure to activate that if you're interested. Uh, but yeah, that looks really damn exciting, to be honest. So uh, there you go. It's also pretty cool that uh, they are... So this is one of the things that I think Edge already has over Chrome, in my opinion. So um, when Chrome introduces API, they're just like, hey, there's a new fancy API. Let's try it out. It's in Dev Canary, whatever. Here's how you can enable it. Here's how you can use it, right? But Microsoft, on top of that, they are talking about tracking prevention because they have this um, tracking prevention mechanism, right, that is integrated into the uh, edge itself where you can set your tracking prevention on basic balance or strict. Strict, by the way, does break quite a few websites, or at least for now. And uh, in addition to talking about the API from the perspective of developers, they also talk about it from the perspective of tracking prevention, right? So I find that to be absolutely fascinating. It's like I never expected Microsoft to be that company that actually cares about the privacy of the users in the web browser. Um, but yeah, there we go. Here we are. So if you're interested in storage access API, do check it out. It's actually pretty damn cool. And uh, I'm quite interested to see whether or not it makes it to the final release of the Edge in Chrome and uh, whether it's ever going to be shipped in Firefox as well is a big question because I, I haven't actually heard anything from Firefox or Mozilla Tim on that area. But uh, yeah, there we go. Okay, and the last thing we got here is the Microsoft and Google team up to make uh, progressive web apps better in Play Store. So um, yeah, another, I guess, milestone in the partnership be between Microsoft and Google. Uh, if you know, if you didn't know, there is basically a PVA, uh, PP, the progressive web app builder. It's like the German way of reading W is just stuck with me too much. Um, progressive web app builder that allows you to essentially convert your progressive web app into the app and then publish it on Microsoft store immediately so that people can install it as an app, which is quite nice. And then the Google has the same thing that is called bubble wrap that allows you to do the same thing for the, uh, Android. So you can package your progressive app app and just publish it on Android as a full on installable APK. So they are now combining efforts to bring better thing, like improve the progressive web apps, add advanced features and customization. One cool thing that I like is the web shortcut support. So this is something I like if you ever used um, browsers, you know that, you know, or like Windows, I guess, right? You know that there are web shortcuts, oh, sorry, the shortcuts here in pretty much any app. So you can, when you write a native app, you can extend it by adding shortcuts that do things like switch to a different tab or open a new window. But if you install a web as a progressive web app, so for example, here I have my Restream chat. This is actually a web app that is installed as a desktop app, right? Which I launch from the start menu and everything, but it doesn't have access to those shortcuts. Well, they are adding a new web standard that will allow web apps to do this, to just have web shortcuts and to define them and to allow navigating to specific pages, which is uh, pretty damn cool, to be honest. 
There's also a bunch of other things that they introduce uh, for Android and for um, desktop. So if you are working with progressive web apps and you're curious about the upcoming improvements, do check it out. This is all really exciting. What is not so exciting is not seeing Apple on here, to be honest, because I think Apple by far is lagging so far behind the both Google and Microsoft in terms of the web app support that is just, um, just sad at this point, to be honest. But here's hoping that, I don't know, at some point they will just allow anyone to ship their own browser engines and features to the iOS and... Uh, the new macOS that is ARM-based now, right? And uh, people can just fix it for them. <laughs> Wouldn't hold my breath for that, but uh, just, you know, fingers crossed, maybe they will allow that at some point. Anyway, that's it for the tips and tricks, just two things. Now we got the releases here and uh, there is four of them today. And uh, the first one we got here is Fastify version 3.0. So we finally got another major version of Fastify that comes with quite a bunch of breaking changes and uh, pretty big improvements. So the first one is that Fastify no longer supports Express uh, middlewares out of the box. Um, if you uh, ever used Fastify, you knew that in version two, you could just take in the Express middleware and plug it into Fastify and it would actually work out of the box. No longer the case with Fastify 3. You can still use Express middlewares, but you will need to use a special Fastify Express plugin that extends the Fastify to support them. But, you know, it's a nice, um, I think it's a welcome addition, at least for me, because it essentially removes this Fastify Express support that you might not sometimes even need. This makes it optional and um, allows you to slim down your application even further, which is kind of great. It's also a bunch of changes to login serialization, schema substitution, schema validation options, pre-parsing hook behavior, and a bunch of changed hooks. But yeah, overall, it seems to be pretty damn great. Again, you know, as I already said multiple times, Fastify is my framework of choice whenever I'm doing anything server-side related. So if you never tried it, do check it out. It's an amazing framework and definitely worth your time. So it's, it's, it's great. And version three is just basically straight up better. So there we go. Right, next release we got here is announcing React Native uh, 063 with Logbox. So the Logbox, um, I think we talked about it, well, when was it? I think like a half a year ago, if not more, to be honest. So the Logbox is this new fancy logging uh, development, well, box, <laughs> right? So it's a improved development UI that shows you better errors, better stack traces, better source code links and so on and so forth. And now it's finally shipped in a stable version without any additional flags or things. So you can just use it. They also introduced the pressable component um, that is more of a convenience thing rather than anything else. And also native colors as in the platform color, dynamic color IS that allow you to react to, uh, well, the current platform theme essentially and support the dark theme out of the box, relatively straightforward manner. So if you're working with React Native, do check this out. This seems to be a very nice release. If you never tried it, well, give it a shot. React Native, in my opinion, is a really neat technology. All right. Next thing we got here is Visual Studio Code's June 2020 release, version 1.47. There's a bunch of minor things, but I think the biggest um, feature here is Windows ARM builds that are now considered stable. So if you're working on Windows on ARM devices, which I think there's only one for now, right? There's the Surface uh, thing. You can now use VS Code on that, uh, which is actually quite exciting, which means that once the ARM 
version of macOS comes out and the ARM MacBooks come out, it shouldn't be too hard to create a VS Code distribution for them as well, which is... Uh, like, I'm starting to wonder if Intel and AMD are going to be anywhere around the development machines in a couple of years, at least, you know, at least in the work machines and development machines and the laptops, because I'm I'm guessing the AMD and Intel are still going to be around for stuff like gaming and high-performance computing, like, I don't know, video editing or whatever, right? But the dev machines and things like this seems like we're kind of moving towards ARM architecture very slowly, but uh, surely, and I'm... Um, I'm interested to see how that develops, basically. <laughs> All right, and the last release we got here, is here for today is Yarn 2.1 that introduces Git workspaces, focused installs, smooth mode, live playground, and a bunch of other improvements. I'm still to use Yarn 2. I'm still using Yarn 1, uh, like the legacy one that they have. It works perfectly fine for me. I probably should try using Yarn 2 at some point, but I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Kind of terrified of using that, but maybe, maybe you know, maybe wrongly so, but uh, yeah, I'm really interested to see the changes for the next version of NPM before jumping anywhere else. But if you are using Yarn or were thinking about using Yarn 2 for its uh, node module-less installs, do check out the release notes. It seems like a really neat release and there's a lot of improvements there. All right. That's it for the releases for this week. Now we got libs and demos and do we have some really neat things here for today? There is quite a few of them, starting with TS particles. So this is um, fork, I guess, or rewrite maybe is a better way of putting it, of particle.js on steroids. So particle.js is a really neat um, package that allows you to work with particle effects in browser, but unfortunately it wasn't actively maintained. And this one is essentially a, Fork rewrites conversion to TypeScript that is also dependency free and actively maintained. And that honestly looks really, really cool. They had a link to the demo somewhere. There we go. There it is. It looks really fancy. Like there is a ton of demos here and all of them look really, really fancy. All of them work pretty damn nice. And uh, yeah, just like, look, look at how fancy this is. Uh, so yeah. What do you think about using DTOs instead of directly mapping your REST endpoints to entities? Uh, what is DTOs? This is a term I have not heard before. Eh, no, not GitHub. I don't want to search GitHub. My fat fingers every time I use uh, data transfer objects. Uh, object that carries data between processes. Um, like, so why? I think this, just as any other approach in programming, this probably has places in some use cases, right? I have yet to have a use case where I needed something like this, so I cannot really comment on that. Again, you know, it's like, just as with any really technologies, there's always a use case that has a legitimate usage for a specific pattern, right? I have not had use cases yet that have usage for the data transfer objects. But then again, I'm mostly working with ETL pipelines, so extract, transform, load, and then visualize, present, whatever. Most of time, those rely heavily on the pipeline syntax. So the pipeline approach is in when you have like some pipelines that are set up within a bunch of processing processes that I ingest the data, transform it, and then expel it to somewhere, to database, to other digestion things. So I have not needed doing anything like this. There also seems to be like mentioned Java only and... Uh, the point is the struct of your endpoint doesn't change when your entities change. 
But I mean, if your entities change, you will have to change your code anyway, right? So uh, again, as I say, as I said, you know, I think there's probably a use case for this, but I just don't know that. I never use that, and that's basically all I can say about that. So let us continue back to our demos. Um, the next thing we got here is share on which is a lightweight, stylish, and ethical share button. So this is essentially a bunch of uh, very basic CSS and JS buttons that allow you to create a share links for, well, just about anything, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Messenger, whatever. And this is, instead of just being widgets, this is just links as far as I can tell that are relatively straightforward to use and don't have any tracking in them, basically. So if that's uh, interesting, do check this one out. DTOs are simply using request and response models, models instead of entity models. Uh, you know what? I would have to read about that before giving you any opinion. So, so basically, that's what I can say about that. Anyhow, continuing, we got wine. I cannot talk apparently. Wine line lay. What? What? No, that's wrong. One line layouts. That is a lot harder to say than I expected it to be. All right, so this is a website that showcases 10 modern CSS layout and sizing techniques. And apparently you can now super center items in the middle of um, div element, whatever, by just using two lines of CSS, which is uh, using the CSS grid, obviously. So this is requires modern CSS, but still I did not know that's, that's a thing and that's amazing. There's a bunch of other cool layouts here that are really easy to replicate. And there's a video at the very end that basically walks you through this. So this was um, from the Google live stream on webdev.live, no, sorry, web.devlive, which is uh, also pretty awesome. So if you're curious about that, do check out the website itself, do check out the video and the layouts here. This is all really, really cool. Okay, continuing, we got Media Kit, a powerful and simple interface for controlling media on the web pages. So this is sort of, um, how do you, how do I put it? So this is an umbrella controller, I guess, that allows you to plug in multiple sources of media, be it audio, video, or whatever, and then control all of them in essentially sequential or parallel manner, allowing you to play just one of them at a time. For now, only supports audio, video, YouTube, and Vimeo coming soon-ish. But yeah, looks interesting. Like, I don't know that there will be many use cases for that, but uh, maybe you have one, so do check this one out. Right, uh, next thing we got here is Filbert, and I think I broke it CSS layout. What is going on here? That is definitely broken like hell. Ah, there we go, <laughs> now it works. Right, so this is a lightweight one kilobyte CSS and JS solution that uh, looks pretty similar to styled components. Uh, again, I'm you know, I'm not a fan of uh, CSS and JS, most of the time, I prefer something like Tailwind and uh, PostCSS that just shakes it down to a minimal size or whatever you use. But if you do like CSS and JS and you were not happy with sizes of styled components or emotion, which are, you know, relatively big-ish, like 10 kilobytes, uh, a bit above that, do check this one out. This is super tiny and seems to be pretty nice and, uh, well, relatively on par feature-wise with uh, the aforementioned alternatives. Right, next thing we got here is map33.js, a JavaScript library to make 3D maps with 3.js, a really fancy looking one. I like, yeah, I cannot, you know, I cannot tell you more. I, as, I, as you might know, I'm not a 3D guy, so I 
have zero knowledge of that field, but that looks really fancy. You know, we can uh, have a look at the map. You can render it in 3D, navigate around it. Uh, all of that seems to be relatively with relatively simple API. So if you are curious, do check this one out. All right. Next thing we got here is a TypeScript module template from Luke Edwards, a template repository for authoring NPM modules via TypeScript. Basically includes the TypeScript config, includes the basic scaffolding, GitHub Actions code for uh, code integration, simple tests, type definition generation, and all that kind of stuff. So if you're writing your own TypeScript modules and wanted a nice template, then do check this one out. Maybe this is exactly what you were looking for. Right, continuing, we got uh, bigheads.io, randomly generated characters for your apps and games. So this is MIT license library that, well, endlessly generates tons of faces. And there's like a lot of faces that can use basically. So there is endless stream of faces that you can get from here. And uh, they actually look really good. So if you were looking to get some avatars into your app or into your game, and uh, wanted to have it from a nicely MIT licensed library that also has a React component, by the way. Do check this one out. It actually looks pretty damn good. Another library that was mentioned in the discussion to the first one, it's called Avatars with 3A in the middle. And yeah, it's uh, yet another Avatars generator that you can also get is either as SVG, PNG, React component or EMG if you can embed somewhere. And it is also, if I remember correctly, MIT licensed. Yes, it is indeed. So there you go. Two avatar libraries for you if you wanted some of that. Right, continuing, we got Uvu, which is an extremely fast and lightweight test runner for Node.js and a browser that also supports ES modules out of the box, supports async await tests, and is super lightweight and extremely performant. So yeah, it's, you know, it's just another super tiny, super fast test runner that looks pretty damn nice. And uh, yeah, the name for it is, um, I'm surprised there is not a W in the middle, to be honest. <laughs> but I guess that would be too cheesy. But you know what? I'll take it. I mean, it is an acronym for, ult oh, no, let me try that again, acronym for Ultimate Velocity Unleashed. So I guess velocity with W wouldn't work, but um, there you go. Anyway, do check it out if that sounds interesting. It is pretty damn good. All right, next thing we got here is capsize, flipping how we define typography in CSS. So this is a um, typography helper tool that allows you to um, cap letters and define letter gaps, not just based on, well, divs and things like this, right? But actually based on the font metadata. So the font sizing that you actually get from the font itself, which is, um, I don't know, like what are, what are the Google fonts? I have no idea what are the good fonts there. Oh yeah, there we go. So we can just pick some whatever. So it actually takes the font, extracts the metadata from it, and then allows you to cap and create line gaps um, based on the font metadata, not how it fits within the div essentially, right? What you get in the end is the CSS that you can use in your app that has this before and after things that adds negative margins based on, again, the font metadata that make the um, font formatting essentially look the way you define it here, which, you know, I'm not a designer guy, so I don't understand anything if that, uh, I don't understand anything about that, but it actually looks really good. 
And probably if you're a designer, if you're working a lot with fonts, you know what this is and why you need that. And yeah, like I've seen a lot of people in the design community really excited about that tool. So here you go, check it out. Okay, next thing we got here is Restyle from Shopify, a type and force system for building UI components in React Native with TypeScript, which, uh, yeah, you know, looks really interesting. I, again, I'm not working with TypeScript that much yet. I'm kind of slowly getting into that field, but it does look interesting. Uh, and um, yeah, I would be interested to see how that develops essentially. Uh, considering this is from Shopify, it's probably gonna be very well supported and documented. So if you are working with React Native and want some type enforced system for your UI components, do check this one out. Okay. Continuing, we got Shaper. This is, um, how do I put, I don't even know how do I put that. Do they have a tagline in the repo? They probably do. Interface Styles Shaper. Yeah, I guess that's the closest you get. Essentially, it's a tool that allows you to visually tweak the sizing of your app on, you know, the kind of generic layout, including spacing, including text frames, button proportions, color hues, saturation, lightness, layers, borders, rounding of the buttons, tweaking it for the dark modes and so on and so forth. And then just get the CSS out of that for your usage in the app, which looks quite handy. So if you were looking at something like this, do check it out. Okay, next thing we got here is Tabler icons. This is a 558 fully customizable SVG icons that are licensed under MIT license, if I remember correctly. Let me just quickly double check. Come on, GitHub, I know we can load sometimes. What is going on? Uh, GitHub, is GitHub down? What is going on? GitHub, can you load something? Is my internet dead? Google. No, Google's loading. Okay, so GitHub is having problems, but if I remember correctly, it was MIT license. So I'm just, I'm just gonna, you know, let you check it out yourself. But uh, it's like this, yeah, a ton of icons. All of them are SVG, look very nice. You can tweak the, obviously you can change the sizes. You can change the strokes, change the colors to whatever you want. And uh, yeah, I can, come on GitHub, are you working now? No, GitHub is apparently dead and doesn't want to work. So uh, I believe it was, at least some permissive license, maybe not MIT, maybe something like Creative Commons, but it was permissive, so you can freely use it anywhere you want, essentially. Right, continuing, we got Node File Trace from the Versal folks, which is a Node.js dependency tracing utility that allows you to build the dependency tree from the uh, input file. So give it the input file that's um, your basically app entry point, and then it outputs the list of files that are used within your app as a dependencies, which can be handy for quite a bunch of things. And in this case, they're using it for the Versal deployment tool itself, which is, you know, a nice tool. So maybe you are, you were in need of something like this as well. So do check this one out. Okay, that is it for the libs and demos. Now we have the last interesting thing here that I, maybe I should have put it in the demo, but I just put it into the interesting and silly thing. And uh, yeah, so this is a perf track. This is, um, Website from Google, I believe, that is essentially tracking the framework performance at scale. So you can pick a framework, which currently there is, what is, seven of them, including Angular, React, Vue, uh, Polymer, Preact, Ember, and Svelte. 
And then you can get the um, sample size for the current data sets and the metrics for the current framework, such as Web Vitals, uh, with you know all the performance metrics, um, if, if, as you expect, like first contentful paint, largest contentful paint, cumulative layout shifts, first input delay, time to first byte, and so on and so forth. Uh, again, uh, with uh, 3G and mobile rendering, which is an interesting way of doing it. So it basically throttles the requests. Uh, you also get the compression uh, outline. You also get the total bytes per app, as well as the split by JavaScript bytes you get and the image bytes. The amount of apps that are larger than one megabyte is insane. Again, you know, obviously most of this is probably images, but still. But it's really interesting to see the differences in performances between all of those um, apps. Amusingly enough, the Preact apps are not that different, for example, from Svelte apps in terms of the Web Vitals, uh, which is kind of curious. So if you're curious to see the statistics and you know check it out yourself, uh, the data sets are split by the month. Um, do check it out. It's actually a really interesting thing to poke around and see what people use basically. Also very interesting to see that there is still like quite significant number of websites that don't compress their static files at all, which is just bonkers. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Right, that's it from my side. So let me check out the chat. AR project is also fun. Okay, uh, it's a GitHub. Oh, now it works. Okay, there we go. So let's check first before we go continue. Let's check if the Tabler icons GitHub is actually MIT. There we go, now it loads and it is, where's the license? Yes, it is MIT license, so there you go. All right, AR cut paste. Oh yes, I've seen the demo uh, on Twitter, I think. Uh, that looked really interesting, but I think it only works with like Photoshop, right? Yeah, so it's a Photoshop plugin, but it was a really neat demo and it is actually written TypeScript, Python and JavaScript. Interesting, I did not know that, okay, so. Oh, okay, so it even works from the browser. Okay, that is really impressive. I did not know that. That is really cool. Thank you for sharing that. I somehow assumed it was like a native iOS app or whatever, but apparently it's, that is really awesome. Okay, I probably should, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna include that into, I'm gonna include that into the next podcast and just talk a bit more about it once I dig into it because this is really awesome. Thank you for sharing. Right. Um, that's actually it from my side. So if you guys have any more questions, suggestions, you want to share your projects, feel free to throw them into the chat right now. If not, we can just wrap it up here for today. And uh, as usual, you can find all the mentioned links on uh, GitHub or bxjs.dev. You can join our Discord chat for, well, to discuss any of that stuff or to talk about video games or whatever. You can follow me on Twitter for a lot of retweets of these things that I find interesting and occasional shit posting about JavaScript and other things. Uh, you can um, follow the Telegram channel where I just collect all the links of the week if you're curious to see the unfiltered feed of all of that. And uh, that's basically it, I think. Yeah, you can obviously watch the VOD for this video immediately after the stream is done. It should be on Twitch for whatever they store it now, I think 30 days or something. And it should be on YouTube indefinitely. And uh, yeah, that's basically it from my side. Doesn't seem like we have any more questions or suggestions. So I guess thank you guys very much for watching. Thank you for your continued support. That's it from my side. So have an awesome rest of the weekend or rest of the week if you're watching the VOD of this. And I see you on Wednesday for the development live stream. 
That's it from my side. Thank you guys very much. And I see you next time.